So I always find it fascinating why in different places in the scripture, it's like, I don't need to do anything. God will care for me. And then in other places, it's like, don't be stupid. Tool in one hand, weapon in the other. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Karen. Hello. And Tracy. Good morning. And Amy. Hello. Morning. Hello. Oh, guys, we've had a transition in my house this week. My oldest is no longer a teenager. Gross. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> yep, my oldest had a birthday this week, and now he's 20 years old. He's becoming an old man like the rest of us. Wow. <laughs> is it terrifying to me? Is it weird that it's terrifying to me that he's been sitting behind in the cockpit of a plane, like making it go up and down? And he's a teenager. <laughs> like, is that that's weird? It is pretty weird. It is weird because ah. it's funny because he's still he's still not legally allowed to rent a car, but <laughs> oh, he is a, he's a, he's allowed to or or a hotel room, but he is allowed to take a machine up into the air or drink. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, or become a state trooper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here in Colorado, he can't he can't drink, he can't buy uh, tobacco. Not that he would do either one of those things. Uh, he can't rent a car. He can't uh, he can't uh, rent a hotel room. But he can rent an airplane, take it up in the air, and he can fly over your house. <laughs> oh my, That's so funny! Which he did that last week. He took my youngest up with him, and they came and they circled around our house a couple of times last week. And so there's my wife and I. We're waving up to him, and he's wiggling the wiggling the wings at us, you know. <laughs> it was I, tur- I, I I turned to Shannon at one point. I said, "Is it really weird for us to look up there and think that both of our sons are up there?" And then we both went, "Oh, <laughs> yeah! Wow! Wow!" <laughs> But yeah, so that's uh, that's interesting. It, it really uh, makes me feel my age too. <laughs> Thinking my my youngest is no longer no longer in the teenage realm of years. So yeah, uh, those transitions are interesting, though. Life marches on, and time marches on. Speaking of time marching on, we are getting into the book of Nehemiah this week. Uh, now. Um, because I, I say time marches on because we have seen uh, the the children of Israel uh, in their history get split up into basically two camps of Israel and Judah. And we saw what was known as Israel basically disappear. We saw Judah eventually get captured by Babylon. And they spent their 70 years in Babylon that God told them they were going to have to. Uh, and then we've seen we've seen since that they've been allowed to return to Babylon, or excuse me, they've been allowed to return to Jerusalem. Uh, but as we talked about, oh gosh, we started talking about it a couple of weeks ago when we were studying the book of Esther, uh, not everybody decided to go back. And a lot of people stayed in that Babylonian empire, or at this point, I guess it's the Persian empire. And, uh, and they just kind of made their home there. And so that's where we get into uh, the book of Nehemiah, which interestingly, I found out recently that Nehemiah used to be part of uh, the narrative that Ezra gave us. It actually, once upon a time, was called Second Ezra. So um, just interesting the way that that the books and stuff change names over the time. 
over time. But um, so that's where we find ourselves. This book begins, according to the timelines I could see anyway, begins around the year 445 BC. Now, this is interesting because I had to do a little math on this and I came to realize that this is actually quite a bit after uh, the return from exile, probably roughly uh, about 80 years after the end of the exile. I, and, you know, when I was originally reading this, I was thinking that, oh, Nehemiah was probably, of course, he was born in exile, but not that far out. But when you realize this, it's like he probably was born even after the return. Because I don't know how old he is in this, but it has been over 150 years now since since the, uh, the, the, the people of Judah were taken captive by Babylon. Now, we are in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, um, and this is in the capital of Persia, known as Susa or Shushan, which is considerably east even from, from Babylon. And so people who haven't gone back have even started to migrate a little further east, away from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah has actually found himself a rather prominent position of being cupbearer to the king. Now, this is, you know, I don't think this is any small thing because to be a cupbearer to a king, you're going to have to be rather, it's a rather trusted position. If you're going to be handing the king something and you're saying, this is safe for you, uh, that king is going to have to trust you quite a bit. Now, one of Nehemiah's friends comes to him. And I suppose, I suppose news, you know, we've talked about how fast news can travel, but I suppose when you're separated as much as Nehemiah has been at this point, things can get, take a little while to get back. But this friend comes and tells Nehemiah essentially that the walls of Jerusalem are still basically a pile of rubble around the city. And this bothers Nehemiah uh, to the point of, weeping and mourning for days i was very interested i was curious about that why why someone who was as far removed from the situation would be so so upset by it you know i I was just thinking myself too you know maybe it's just that point of like national pride Mm -hmm. you know that you want the best for your country even though you are still so far removed it's still like one of those sensitive areas of your heart Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I did kind of consider that as well because, I mean, even today, it seems like we have a big amount of natural or cultural pride amongst Jewish people uh, with their history to an extent that I don't know that a lot of other cultures have. I wonder, too, if um, because he was so so much a person of faith, maybe that's why he was also such a trustworthy individual. And so if he had his faith you know, deeply in his heart, he then also becomes someone that the king knows as a rock-solid person. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it didn't hurt. Because, uh, I, you know, I generally seem to find that people of faith are, well, people of real faith, let's put it that way, people of true faith are, they tend to be more, seem to be more trustworthy. Now, there's people who claim faith that mm-hmm. that are less trustworthy, and we've all encountered encountered that, uh, and hopefully... Hopefully we haven't been that, but, um, right. but yeah, so Nehemiah has, has not just kept to a national pride, but there definitely seems to be uh, a matter of faith involved here too, because 
as he is considering what he's going to do, he immediately decides he has to pray to God about this. Uh, he, I mean, I, you know, he's, he, he's, it seems like he's felt a need. He's felt a desire calling to, to do something about this wall. But his first matter of business is to pray. Clean the slate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in his prayer, he confesses the sins of the people, which is always interesting to me. When somebody is praying for somebody else's sins, I, I don't. I don't understand how that works, but it definitely seems like our prayers for other people's sins somehow uh, helps to, like Tracy said, clean that slate. I don't know. Well, I think there's a sense in which the um, the people of the Bible very much saw themselves as, you know, one corporate body. And we are sort of remiss in that we don't think that way as much. Like we pray individually and for our individual families, but we don't see the church always as the body of Christ. Like really see it that way. And we need to get together and pray. And we need to pray for, you know, these children or that children. And so this must be the right way um, because we see Daniel doing it as well. Mm -hmm. So to take into account the fact that our corporate sins are somehow interfering with God's plans or delaying God's plans, at least, um, mm -hmm. is something we have to think about. So we've talked about this before on the podcast, and I'm going to go back to my pet verses about this. Um, in 1 John 5, there's this odd passage that took me a long time to get my brain around. Of course, I'm still doing it. And starts in verse 16 says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's an open, blatant encouragement to pray for each other's sins to be forgiven. All right. Then you go to the book of Job, and I don't know if you remember this, but at the beginning of the book, where it's describing Job, it says in verse 5, Job 1-5, when a period of fasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. All right. And apparently God approved of that because at the end of the book where God has been talking to Job and his friends and everybody's been put in their place in Job 42, <clears throat> eight, the second part of the verse, it says, um, OK, well, no, let me start in verse seven. So he had these friends, right? Um, After the Lord had said all these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite. I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. See, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of like, 
We may not understand all of the whys and wherefores, but we are definitely told to pray for each other for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is a. Wow. You know, yeah. Yeah. Wow. is right. And <laughs> I, I guess it must be it must be a factor of like we've said here a few times and it's something that I'm continually wrapping my brain around and having to re- remind myself is that prayer is not for us to get God to do what we want. It's for us to get in line with God's will. And mm, Except if we're praying for someone else, how does that work? Exactly. Except, well, but, you know, I am certain that God would want them to have forgiveness as well. So, I don't know, but we're, so supposed, to, we're supposed to do it. Is it in Psalms? Where's that verse that says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me? Isn't that in Psalms? That sounds like a David thing to say. Anyway, there's a text that says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So it's like this intentional sinning, right? Cherishing Mm -hmm. sin, like that's intentional sinning. But in, in many places in the Bible, it talks about unknowing sin, right? There's conscious sin and there's unconscious sin and like what job was praying for for his children was like well you know after their big parties right after the, he's talking about how his children are all well off and they have these house parties and they all hang out together and after their house parties he always does a purification prayer for his children so it's kind of like well i hope they didn't get like too carried away and say or think things that they shouldn't have and they haven't had time to repent so i'm going to pray for them mm-hmm I don't know. Apparently, there's some value to it because there's some pr- pretty blatant encouragement. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we don't have to understand it, but we're supposed to do it. And so it's a reminder to us all that we can pray for each other and we can pray for we can pray for communities and pray forgiveness for the sins of 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 others. And so um I can see where there could be a slippery slope of <laughs> looking at other people and going, oh, Lord, forgive them for that, you know, and and uh, and be doing it in sort of a finger pointing fashion. Um, OK, one but, more example. Yeah. If there's anyone on this earth who shouldn't be forgiven, perhaps it's the guys nailing Jesus himself to the cross. Yeah, and but he yet, says mm-hmm. and yet. He, his prayer to God specifically asks for forgiveness for them for their unconscious sin. Right. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right. So I don't know. I just, I think there's a strong place for it. Yeah. Yeah. So something to do, something to remember, something for us all to consider. You know, I, I wonder, you know, and what makes it hard too is that you have to do that prayer without being self righteous. Yeah, exactly. That's in being judgmental in yourself where where it makes it a fine line or a slippery slope to do that without being judgmental on the other person. But yet putting yourself in that humble and contrite position to say, you know what, Lord, forgive them for their sins. Yeah. You know, and almost leaving it at that. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that, where it would be easy to be pointing the finger, you know, (laughs) and and, uh, yeah, it's a. That's one step from the Pharisee. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that sinner. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Um, Yeah. Well, I think when we look, especially at Daniel's prayer, we're able Mm -hmm. to see that they incorporate themselves into that prayer. Like they're saying, we have sinned. They're not saying, look at that guy. 
he's doing bad and I'm going to pray for him because he's sorry, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, he's definitely saying, oh, man, we have missed the mark. Lord, please help us. So I think that's a very excellent example of how we ought to pray so that we're seeing our faults. Yeah. Well, in his prayer, Nehemiah remembers, or he recalls, I should say, God's covenant, where he says, if you, uh, and this would have been God talking to, to the Israelites, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And we've seen that happen. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so this, we have really seen this play out in the history of of the children of Israel because we watched as they squandered away everything they had that was good and, and God had to take away the toys and uh yeah you know everything that everything that they were proud of but but misusing had to be had to be taken away and so now when we have a whole new generation at this point it seems like even two generations separation and people are back and and uh rebuilding that that now god is able to start rebuilding as well you know and i think it's good too that it's on it's on their their minds though it's like, you know what, we did do this in the past. We did go against the commandments um, that you gave to Moses. And, you know, after this, after the 70 years, we don't want any more of that. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think, too, is if you fast forward, then they took it just to the extreme. Yeah. Where everything became legalistic. Right. Right. Yeah. It's easy. It's pretty easy for us to go that way. Getting too... <sighs> Mm, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. And so at the same time, making sure that other people aren't doing that too. Don't you dare, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. Well, Nehemiah, uh, being in the position he is, he's able to talk to the king and uh, he's taking the wine to the king one time and he seems sad. And I would imagine as king, you don't want the guy handing you what may or may not be poisoned to seem upset. <laughs> So there was a very interesting part of this story that jumped out at me. So I had to go find a Jewish calendar and look it up. So in verse one, it says in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, right? Mm -hmm. So then he processes all this. He's upset. He has his prayer. And then in verse in chapter two, where this part where we're talking about now, it says in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. Okay. well, Mm -hmm. how long is that? How long has he been so upset that his face is visibly downcast, right? Mm-hmm. So we have Kislev, then Tevet, then Shivet, then Adar, then Nissen. So this is like four to five months. Yeah. Between the beginning of this and when he goes to the king and is visibly upset. And isn't that odd? Like, and they pointed that out. Like, it says that. Yeah. It gives the timeline in the month of in this year and then in the month of in this year. So yeah. it's four to five months. Maybe it shows he was long-suffering. That and... <laughs> Literally. In this case, it's literal. Yeah, yeah, long-suffering, but also, if any, if you've ever had a calling and you cannot, 
you know, when you, when you've had a real calling from God and you can't get away from it, that you know, that's when you know. It seems to be when you know that this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so for him to go, you know, five months of being sad, um, that that just tells me that he really had a burden put on his heart by God to to do something about this. Um, you know, I suppose between the four of us, we could probably point to times in our lives when we've seen things that were supposed to happen or we felt were supposed to happen and just ended up keep uh, working towards it. I remember once upon a time, about a hundred thousand years ago, when I was a teenager, I had considered becoming a pastor and I was talking to, uh, a pastor who was doing some, some classes on how to do evangelism. And I had mentioned to him that I was considering it. And he said to me, if you can avoid it, you should. And he didn't mean like, don't do it because it's a bad thing. He just meant basically, if you're able to get away from it, then you're not really called to it. And so uh, that's kind of what I'm seeing here with Nehemiah to go for for this long to be upset about a city he's never seen, at least as far as I know, he's never seen it. Um, but to to really feel like I need to do something about this. I have to, the, the, there's something that should be done and it's in my, it may be in my power. I have an ability here. I have an opportunity. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting to me that he went for five months continuing to be this drawn to it. This gives him the opportunity then to talk to the king because the king's like, why are you sad? And so he's, he's, it says he's terrified. Nehemiah is terrified. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of suspecting that this king didn't necessarily like people just come and talking to him randomly the same way that Xerxes was when we were talking about um, Esther. You didn't probably just walk up to him and and make a request. So uh, I'm sure he was, it seems like he was very nervous about it. But he he tells him the situation. You know, I'm how can I be basically how can I be happy when I when the city of my ancestry is in ruins? So he asked for permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. He asked him for letters of passage and for materials, and uh, the king goes for it. In style, I mean, talk about asking for the moon. Yeah, yeah, the king. Uh, it's, it, I think there was even some wording in the in the text about how do you put it? The king granted them to me according to the uh, the good hand of my God upon me. So it it continues to be interesting to me how these these oh I don't know what word I want to use. I'll, I'll say pagan kings continue to be willing to to honor God in this way, to do these things, recognizing the authority of God, whether it be as a God among gods or whether it be they really do recognize God as the God, which I don't think is the case here, but uh, I'm not in, I wasn't in, in uh, Artaxerxes' shoes. But uh, Nehemiah gets permission, gets stuff, gets to go. And <laughs> a couple of guys on the way seem to start to give him a little trouble here and we'll hear about their names after a while there's a guy named Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and they do not like the fact that there is somebody who wants to actually do something to lift up uh these the people of Jerusalem well what about Geshem the Arab well he's mentioned later but yeah him too but these these guys that uh 
they just don't like the idea of Jerusalem being rebuilt. In fact, I think, don't they say something like, why would you, are you going to rebel against the king? They obviously don't really know what's going on. Um, well, even right there in verse 10, when it first talks about them, it says they were, let's see, when they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've all, I bet we can point our fingers at at people we've seen like that who, for some reason, don't want to see others be lifted up. Um, I don't, you know, I never under, I never quite understand why people would want to hold, keep others held down as if it somehow uh, somehow negatively affects them. We've seen it, you know, I think we see it in in general society. I think we see it in in uh, within church families. We see it all over the place. Well, in this case, it's specifically the Israelites. And when the Israelites are on their game and working directly under God, they are unstoppable. Yep. So I, I think any nation with a reasonable society of historians mm-hmm. is going to know that if the Israelites become strong again, they've had 70 years plus of the Israelites either gone, completely dismembered as a nation, or weak as they've been since they came back. They're not mm-hmm. a threat. Their enemies didn't even bother, the surrounding nations didn't even bother to come stomp them out because they were so weak. So now that there seems to be a threat of them getting strong again, I think the historians are going to be like, um, can we read some of these older chapters and just remind you what the Israelites are like when they're on their game? That's true. Yeah. Anybody who's been paying attention uh, in the area would have, would have seen that. But it has been, you know, it's been a bit. Well, we know the Ammonites. The Horonites I haven't really heard too much about, but the Ammonites for sure know the mm-hmm. difference. Well, Nehemiah decides to go secretly. He gets to Jerusalem. He goes secretly and, and starts looking at the wall and seeing all the damage. And as you're reading through it, I mean, it just sounds like literally this wall has just been sitting there torn apart for, uh, what did I figure? It's like since it was knocked down, it's been over 150 years that this wall has been sitting like, like this. And at the one point, it's even talking about how um, he went to some oh, sort of particular gate and there wasn't even room for him to ride his animal under it. Right. So. Um, I thought that was an interesting little detail he threw in there, but it just really gives a picture of of the condition that the city is in still at this point. You know, we read we you know we read about how the people were able to rebuild the temple, and we know there's people living there, and the city the state the city still is uh, kind of a shambles. So what do you guys think of this, though? Because wasn't there a text before when they rebuilt the temple where they said, God will be our wall? Or was it God that said, I will be your wall? What was that? I thought it was said, God, God said, I will be your wall. That Yeah. So now, yeah. now, now here we are, like, now we need to rebuild the wall. I wonder what the difference is. Yeah. You know, in my notes, too, it has, you know, since it had been such a long time and they hadn't done anything, you know, even though some were in exile, I, I often wonder too, and what I have here is that if the ones that stayed behind weren't in that mental state of exile where they there was no national pride, they were, you know, down, depressed, just living there, just existing there. 
mm-hmm. where they hadn't cleaned up, they hadn't rebuilt, they just left it. Yeah, you know, in my mind's eye, I can kind of imagine how, you know, you get a group of people who get excited about doing something, and then they get there and they see that it's a it's a wreck, and that might leave them in a bit of a state of depression. Like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting. I wonder. I think it's neat how he sort of sneaks around. I mean, it makes it an interesting story, right? He is sneaking around the city, assessing the damage and looking at individual gates. And he's giving us a historical view, too, of the fact that there was a fish gate and a dung gate. You know, like there's some place where people take the manure out of the city um, and a place where they bring the fish in. And these kinds of specific gates where different parts of civic life are going to take place. And then he, in the morning, he meets with the men of the city and he says, but I told them how the hand of my God was upon me. And I said to them, let us build the wall. Um, and it, it, it is, he's coming from a position of strength. So he's seen the damage. He knows how bad it is, but he's someone who's like, I know God is with me. We can get this done. And I, I like his character because they're in a bad place. Like you were saying, Matt, you know, they're kind of, or maybe it was Tracy, they're, they're just sort of existing. They're not mm-hmm. trying to do God's will or even, you know, finish any sort of work. They're just getting along. And here he is. No, God is with us. Let's get this done. Right. And then as, uh, as he, you know, he gives them, he gets, he starts talking to them. Uh, we get near, we get the, uh, <laughs> you know what, Karen, I can't talk. Why don't you talk? <laughs> You know, I used to tell my children, form the sentence, then speak. <laughs> anyway. I haven't developed that skill. <laughs> yeah, I struggle with that. Or actually, I think mine's declining as I age, but whatever. <laughs> um, so I love how he says, um, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So mm-hmm. this is civil disgrace, not spiritual disgrace, right? Right. And he says, I also told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. I was, I thought that was interesting that he talks about being in disgrace like that. Like you were talking about like the national pride. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how a, a person like Nehemiah, who probably held a pride for a place that he'd never been, and then he goes and sees it, he probably was able to see it from outsiders' eyes mm-hmm. and understand that, you know, the neighbors were looking at this place and saying, wow, look at that place. They're, they're just, they're a wreck. I can imagine that's probably what people think of my place now with my yard the way it is. But um, so the people who are living there and maybe have this sort of pseudo pride in in their in their city, maybe have kind of grown blind to its actual, uh, you know, state of being. It's just sort of forgotten that it's a, that it's completely trashed. So Nehemiah goes to some of the officials. It says priests and nobles and, and officials, and he tells his story. So he's you know relating you know what what's on his mind, and proposes building. And they immediately agree and get to work, which is kind of cool that um, people are able to, th- th- these people are are willing to just jump right into it. It's like they just needed somebody to say, get to work, you know? 
most people. Well, yeah. I suppose. Most people right, are just some just some leadership. Yeah, most people are sadly sedentary without leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so they 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 get the inspiration, but then Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab <laughs> try to stop the process of the progress. So I love how they break the work down, and it's it's I don't actually want to read it in detail, but it's fascinating to me that they kept such good records that they actually said, you know, the fish gate was rebuilt by so-and-so, mm-hmm. right? And then the next section was rebuilt by so-and-so. And then this section over here was rebuilt by so-and-so. Like they divided up by families and tribes and everybody just got to work. And that's awesome because it's it's like the way Israel itself was organized as a nation. You know, you have the tribes within. And so there's there's tribal loyalty and that is going to be within the larger loyalty of Israel. So it makes for good teamwork, right? Mm-hmm. So like we're all a team, but you're over there, you're on that team, and we're working for the same thing. It's kind of an interesting, like we don't really have that now. Not really, and that's sad. It's kind of sad that, well, I think there's a lot of things that happen. There's always that, there's always going to be the people who just want to sit back and let other people do it. And then there's going to be other people who may want to jump in and do it, but don't want the help. And it always becomes sort of an us and them. But in this case, everybody jumps in and and does a and does a bit. It's like basically it's right where they are. They start they start working on the wall. I I I uh, like the way Nehemiah responds to those who are trying to stop him, though where he says the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And so I'd I'd like, I like the way that he immediately dismisses these people who are trying to stop them from doing what he's been called to do. Uh, And, and just basically not even giving them really much consideration at all, because, you know, we can, if we're called to do something or we're, you know, they're trying to get something done and there's people who, who just want to poo poo everything. Um, it can get kind of easy for us to fall into uh, a despair or into, uh, you know, withdrawing just to try to avoid, uh, the opposition. But in this case, Nehemiah is just like, just back off guys. Just, just, just step back because you're not going to, you are not going to have any influence on us here. This is going to happen. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean that uh, they they quit, but they just aren't going to be. Sambalat and Tobiah and uh, Geshem just are not going to be allowed to to deter them. And yeah, so so everybody is stepping in. They're doing their work. They're doing what uh, everybody is doing what they can right where they are, except for one little section of people and and. I don't remember who wrote the book, if it's Nehemiah here or if it's Ezra or who wrote it, but it points out that there are the how's it, the nobles of the Tikoites did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. That was sort of interesting to me that there was this group that just said, nah, not going to do it. I always kind of wondered why, why they chose not to step in if they thought it was below them if they just weren't interested in the work um what their reasoning was for not wanting to 
wanting to step in. But the author here definitely calls him out on it in the uh, in the writing of the book. Well, as we get into chapter four, uh, we see that that uh, Sanballat and Tobiah have not backed off. Uh, they keep raising a bit opposition to building. Okay, so this is the, the way they approach this, though, is really interesting. Like, let me just read this here at the beginning of chapter four. When Sanballat heard that they were that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. So fifth grade mentality and bullying has existed for a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, in Nehemiah's prayer uh, he he uh he's asking for protection because he's recognized that he says here our god we are despised he asks for for it all to be turned back on the people who are against him um a fairly typical prayer from you know this mm -hmm. in this era yeah and you know the second half of it of the prayer is interesting because it's to me it's like the opposite of what he was praying when he was praying for the sins of Israel because now with these guys he says don't cover their iniquity don't let their sin be blotted so that's that's interesting too now i Maybe guess he's saying that they're not part of what they're trying to do at all it's like yeah. don't you know don't put the hedge of protection over them because they do not have our best interests in mind mm -hmm. and i have in my notes too that you know when it, like karen was saying when that fifth grade mentality of bullying comes out you know and i think back to to david and his brothers when he went to with the israel um to visit his brothers when they were in the army mm -hmm. and goliath was making his his rude remarks and but it started with his brothers why, why are you here and not tending to those few sheep? You know, and when the stakes are set against you and, and that mentality comes out, great things happen. That's when God moves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, David, and yeah, I, I remember what you're saying. And that that's that spirit on each side was very obvious. Like, here's here's the older brothers re resorting to ridicule and cutting down. Right. And then yeah. here's little david going uh-uh we are acting for god like yep. you're letting this uncircumcised philistine run his mouth why yep. aren't you about god's business right so well and this seems very intentional like they're not it, what was happening with israel was more depression we can't get this done we're not going to keep trying we're just surviving whereas sanballat is coming along and intentionally harming someone else. Like, he, like Karen said, you know, he's a bully mm -hmm. and he's, so I can kind of see where Nehemiah is coming from. Like he's, he's just saying, Lord, please help us. This guy is really trying to harm us. And that's mm -hmm. far more intentional than just falling into a depression. Yeah. So I'm thinking back to um, second Chronicles 20, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Again, it's the Ammonites even then, but it's also the Moabites coming against Israel when Jehoshaphat is in charge. 
and they they hear that this you know the the horde of enemies is growing a vast army is coming from Edom Edomites are in on it too and so they all get together and they fast and they pray and Jehoshaphat's prayer involves things like see how they are coming to repay us um oh god will you not judge them right and so there's there's this call for look what they're doing like we're your people protect us judge them in sort of calling out their sins to god who can see it and by the way we're told that'll happen again before the end of the world where the saints well, will be crying out to god like how long how long are you looking down are you seeing what's happening how long mm-hmm. well <laughs> uh, i don't know about you guys but i've been praying that for a while <clears throat> <laughs> Well, the text tells us that the wall got built to half its height. And it says, for the people had a mind to work. Mm-hmm. So they really had decided they wanted to do this and they worked together. And I think it's important to recognize, too, like we had just read, how everybody was doing a piece of it. Everybody was doing their own part. And it actually started to have progress. And if you think about if this person had decided, meh, I'm not going to worry about it, then the person next to him wouldn't have had something to build up against, you know, and then you're going to have gaps and 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 such. And so it really was important that everybody was was working together and they really wanted to do it. And they quickly got half of the half the wall built, (laughs) which, of course, ticked off Sanballat and Tobiah even more. But uh, the people just. They, they respond with prayer, but not just prayer. It says that they set, <clears throat> they set a watch against the enemy. So they're praying and they're watching and they're preparing. They know that there's going to be, that attacks might come. So this is, I always find it interesting why people pray for different things in different situations and how they act. So back in Ezra 8, there was this text that stood out to me as 8.22, where he says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of God, of our God, is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer, right? So traveling down the road with many assets they did not ask they did not have any kind of human protection because they had prayed for god's protection and they felt like they were within god's will and it actually says i was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen because we had said our god right Mm -hmm. so now you fast forward here and the situation is different and in verse 9 it says But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Mm -hmm. So I always find it fascinating why in different places in the scripture, it's like, I don't need to do anything. God will care for me. Uh And then in other places, it's like, don't be stupid. Tool in one hand, weapon in the other, you know? Yeah, right, right. I remember being in a situation like that. We had a mission trip that we'd gone on and we were introduced to a little girl whose mom was making popsicles at a local school and trying to sell them to the parents because she needed money to get doctors for her little girl. And the little girl had leukemia. And so we we were in a very, very poor area. Like they were living in what we would house an animal in, like three-sided lean-to sheds. 
And anyway, so we prayed for the little girl. And, you know, we like did like an anointing and a laying on of hands. And then someone said, well, let's get her to America to a doctor. And I remember thinking, oh, no, no, no. Like, we just told these people God was going to help them. And now we're like, no, wonderful American doctors are going to help you. And I remember being really incensed about that. But anyway, it turned out pretty cool because what actually ended up happening is we did get her to the U.S. And the U.S. doctor found that she actually had a parasite uh, that was causing the leukemia. And she wasn't, um, you know, she was she was okay. And um, she went home and and uh, is still going to the little Christian school there. And like, I don't know, to me, it was the one of those moments where I'm thinking, you know, do we trust God or are we going to um, are we going to do this thing where we're like the hero? Yeah. And, and that's a little bit of a question because I'm not sure. I, I would I would guess I would change your question to are we going to trust God to solve it himself? Or are we supposed to be part of the solution? And I think that's a dilemma because here on earth, where we're called to be God's hands and feet, there are times where we're part of other people's solution, part of our own solution, right? Like never set aside personal responsibility. And yet there's other times when God simply steps in, takes it over, and, and like, you know, all you need to do is stand and watch. God will take care of this. So, and I, I just, I find those different situations kind of fascinating in my own life. Sometimes I struggle. When am I supposed to sit back and be passive? When am I supposed to step forward and do something? When am I supposed, you know? Well, I suppose it never hurts to pray and do some due diligence. Um, and I mean, I think by, by beginning with the prayer, they're, they're asking for that protection, but having caution, I don't think. You know, having caution, I don't see it as being like not trusting God at all. I think it's, uh, you know, we we recognize sometimes that God has given us abilities and we can, you know, we can step up where we're able. But I suppose at the same time, I don't see a lot here about any kind of an army that Jerusalem has raised at this point. It seems just to be citizens who are who are being cautious and raising a guard. Yeah, and I I agree because I I find it very interesting that they are not, you know, waiting for angels or something to defend them. They have, you know, a hammer in one hand and a, you know, a weapon in the other. Um, And so they're willing to do self-defense. They're willing to say, all right, you attack us and there's going to be consequences. So it's a very interesting part of the Bible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I I think what I... It was inspired by in this was just recognizing that we're going to do the work and we're going to protect each other as we do the work. We are we are determined. We we know that we're led to do this. We know that God wants us to do this. And we are going to actively not only actively help build, but we are going to protect one another as we do it. So as you're laying bricks, I'm standing behind you. Uh, with my sword drawn, ready for whatever might come. And in the meantime, praying God protect us. Because, of course, you know, my prayer would be, I really hope that I don't have to use this sword. That would be that would be my prayer. Uh, but being ready, ready to do it if you have to and watching God work. You know, I think that's covering all 
all the spectrums of it because, you know, you're putting in the faith, but you're also, like we had said before in the past, I think you mentioned it, is you're doing your due diligence. It's mm-hmm. not like you're you're not um, trying to, to – uh, you have the faith, but you're also covering yourself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know that's not coming out right, but but to have the sword ready, continuing to do the work, and praying, to me, it's just covering all your bases. Yeah, mm-hmm. and to me, it's to me, it's a call to recognize that in this world, God uses humans to get His work done sometimes, and then other times He intervenes and does the work Himself. Yeah, and and since we can't read His mind or see the bigger plan, just be ready. And so, it, and anyway, I'm I'm not trying to like stir up a huge like offshoot discussion. It just I find it fascinating how sometimes in the Bible it's like, nope, stand and watch. God's gonna do it all. And then other times it's like, yeah, you got a sword in your hand. How come? Why not? <laughs> just be on the ready. Just be on the ready. Well, yeah, and you know, I guess it seems to me that a lot of times when people would just you know stand and watch God, usually a prophet was telling them, hey, just just watch. You know, get out of the way and let God work. And I don't I never got the impression from reading this that that this was the people trying to do what they had asked God to do for them. It was just they were they were just stepping in and doing what they could while asking God uh, for 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 that protection. Well, we can see that all is not just happy roses and and, uh, good times in Jerusalem, because chapter five starts to talk about an economic crisis that they're in. And people have been mortgaging their lands. Uh, some of their children have been sold. They can't re- redeem them, as you recall, the the redemption processes that the Israelites had for, for uh, you know, when they had sl- sold someone into slavery, they could, they could be Jubilee. redeemed. Jubilee. Yep. Um, and maybe I wonder, I wonder if they were practicing Jubilee at this point. But you know, uh, the thing I was thinking, too, is that, that was great for for them. That was part of their practice as a as a nation, but they were conquered. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they're not in exile, they still might be, you know, under the thumb of their oppressors. You know what I mean? Yeah. That they might not be able to practice that where, you know, it could be outside influences that don't aren't subscribing to the same thing. Yeah. Well, Nehemiah he speaks out against these nobles who have been charging interest because they weren't supposed to, you weren't supposed to charge interest to fellow Israelites, but specifically to spell it specifically <laughs> to fellow Israelites. Uh, I think, I think they were allowed to, I don't know. I guess it really wasn't spoken to in, in the mosaic law about whether they were allowed to uh, have interest from um, non-Israelites, but, they specifically were not supposed to charge interest to other Israelites if they loaned something out. And so apparently there were some nobles who had been charging interest to fellow Israelites uh, and stepping in and trying to claim uh, payments for debts that they knew that the people couldn't pay. And Nehemiah is not, uh, he's not happy about that. He makes a call for the land to be restored as well as part of the interest that these guys have been charging. And surprisingly, the nobles agree to it. Uh, it, it I say surprisingly, but I don't know. I, man, you know, it would be interesting to have heard Nehemiah speak because it seems like he must have been quite the motivational speaker to step in and say, hey, we need to build the wall. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, OK, let's do it. And he steps in and says, you guys 
give up that huge source of income that you've got and in fact give some of it back and they go okay I, I, you know, and, and I say interesting to to hear him speak as a motivational speaker because I would I would surmise here that uh, he's definitely being led by God to say these things. It's not like he's just speaking on his own behalf. And so he's got some I think he must have some divine input into his words. But it would have it would have been an interesting thing to see, uh, see how he was able to inspire people in this direction. Yeah, I think that's really important to notice. And I, I certainly probably wouldn't call it a motivational speaker because I find people like that super annoying. Um, <laughs> but I, but I feel like his faith is so obvious to the people and they knew good and well what God had required of them. And they knew that they weren't supposed to be doing this. So when they heard someone just speak plainly to them and say, Hey, restore to these people, what is rightfully their property? They are like, okay, <laughs> we better do that. So I, I like what you're saying, but I also think it's coming from a position of faith and when you, when you know you've done wrong and the Lord sends someone to correct you in a kind way, then you go, oh, yes, that's the right way. Mm-hmm. And Nehemiah practices what he preaches here because when we get into uh, some more of chapter 5, we're told that he was appointed governor for like 12 years. And he he would have had the right to place a tax on people for what they called the governor's provisions. And he didn't do that. Uh, he uh, not only did he not do that, but he says he fed 150 Jews and rule. I cannot speak today. Form f- the sentence, then speak. Oh, the, the, <laughs> sen- the sentence is formed, but, but the mouth is not cooperating. <laughs> He fed 150 Jews and rulers from his personal supplies. So he could have he he could have had the people pay him I, I know, in a way, I guess you'd call it a tribute, but specifically uh, taxes for governor's provisions to to supply himself with these needs. But he he fed people from his own stuff. He didn't he didn't put place those taxes on people, even though he had the right, the the quote unquote right to do it. And he has a prayer to God. He says, remember me, my God, for for good, according to all that I have done for this place. Uh, And he's he hasn't been doing this for his personal gain or for power or influence. He's been doing this for the good of Jerusalem. Uh, A conspiracy rises against Nehemiah. The wall is almost complete. Sanballat and Geshem, they asked to meet with Nehemiah. So remember, these are the guys who have been opposition for a while. And they want him to come alone to the temple. And Nehemiah is basically like, no, I I can't. I'm I'm too busy doing the work that God has given me. I don't have time. I don't have time for a distraction. And Sanballat and uh, Geshem are are persistent, but Nehemiah won't do it. Uh, Sambalat accuses Nehemiah of doing it for personal glory, which Nehemiah denies and prays for strength to continue. And one guy named Shemaiah, he specifically wants Nehemiah to go to the temple, says, uh, you know, you, you need to come to the temple for just to be safe. And but what he's actually we find out he's actually trying to do is he's trying to lure him there so that he can kill him. 
Uh, but uh, Nehemiah says, no, I'm not going to do it because he knows that if he's even seen as hiding, he's he's going to be branded as a coward. So, you know, there are going to be times in our lives when we're called to do things and people are wanting to detract us, distract us, both, I guess. And uh, it would be there's times when it's going to be tempting to set it aside, hide, try to re- just keep ourselves feeling safe. Yeah, his response was amazing. Should a man like me run away? Yeah. Should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so in in trying to do the right thing in and not being so concerned with his personal safety, he ends up saving his own life because because Shemaiah was definitely going to kill him there. Mm, hang on. Go Why ahead. do you think they would have killed him? Didn't it say that? No. In thir- well, I didn't think it did. In 13, it says um, he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Maybe I read between the lines. Yeah. In, in New King James, it says that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. Hmm. I didn't take it as a get him out back of the school so we could kill him. <laughs> I didn't take it as anything like that. I took it yeah. as like like a public shaming, getting him right. to act, you know, act in some way. Taking a bribe, him. you know, that kind of thing in the ah. shadows where it caused people to question his integrity. Well, I know. Okay, so I see what you're saying. In verse, verse 10, it ends yeah, by night 10. they are yeah, coming verse to 10. kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone warns him they're coming to slay you. Yeah. yeah interesting. So. I knew I got it from somewhere. I didn't make it up, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, whether they would have killed him or simply shamed him, it would have defeated his cause. And and uh, it would, you know, it would have been bad for the people to see Nehemiah hiding. And, and, and literally, you know, in well, just thinking in, in the world we live in today, they could have done literally done both. Where they did kill him, but yet, okay, so then the people raise up the question, why was he there? Well, then that's where they hit his credibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was hiding. Yep. Go okay, ahead, I get it. So Shemaiah says to him, let's meet in the house of God because they're coming to kill you. <clears throat> and then in verse 12, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Mm. Okay. So dire yeah. threat. Oh gosh, respond to the threat, respond to the threat. Aha, made a fool out of you. Yeah. So yeah, he chooses not to hide, stays out where he could have had harm. As we were podcasting, I, I also um, texted the pastor who had been with me on that mission trip. So this is way back in the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I said, what had they found? Like, was there any final diagnosis And um, on that little girl? And he said, no. When When they got to the doctors in Lincoln... Um, they found her to be completely cancer free. So, and and, yeah, there was no, cause I was like, wasn't there some parasite or something? He said, no, absolutely nothing. Well, yeah. And see, that's a, that's a, that is a really good example of how we can pray to God for protection of things. And if we don't pay attention, we don't see that he's already given the means for that protection. You know, he already had people in place to take that girl, to bring that girl, girl to America and either people hadn't recognized it or or whatever but we pray you prayed for it and then the means made that made itself made 
The means made themselves apparent. That's all, folks. Wow. Matt's having a good day. I am. That's great. That's awesome. So yeah, that's that's cool. That is cool. Well, the wall. This is the this is the part that was really kind of cool to me because all this talk that we've done about about this wall. The wall gets completed in 52 days. A so little less than a month. Apparently, a fox didn't climb up on it and knock it down. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, these guys who are trying to t- trying to hold them back and and keep them from progressing, they're making ridiculous claims. And if people had listened to those claims, they might have been detracted from the work. But they chose not to. They chose to follow what God had led them into. And and they got the job done and they got it done quickly. And really, it just took a matter of doing it. You just step in and do it and you do it together and it gets done. This wall that had been down for 150 years, 152 years, if my math is right. And they got it done in 52 days. And so. When when you when God is giving you giving you the ability, giving you a mission, step in and do it. Step in and do it. And and as a community, when God has given a community an ability to do something, they need to step in and do it. Because like I said before, if somebody had decided not to build their section of the wall, it would have left holes. It would have left gaps. It would have left weaknesses. Go ahead, Karen. I love the text right after that where it says, you know, it was completed in 52 days. It says, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Yeah, so as... This is the part where I'm trying to formulate the sentence. Good job. <laughs> Thoughtful pause. Take your time. Take your time. <laughs> this is hey, I have the I have the editing ability to make myself sound amazingly intelligent. <laughs> and that, it just flows off your tongue. That's right. Just a matter of seconds. <laughs> no thought necessary. I already have it. Uh huh. Yeah. But where the where the city had been, it had been sort of this this gaping sore. You know, looking and as people were looking at Jerusalem and going, oh, that's supposed to be the city that that that, you know, God lives in. And and, uh, you know, they have their temple in there. And and uh, but look at it, look at it there. It's it's nothing, you know, and now they see it put back together rather quickly. And it becomes again this. uh, Well, it's the shining city on the hill, you know, and everybody can look at it now and see that. God was working and uh, because they know, you know, Israel has always kept that even when they were screwing up, they still kept that pride that we are God's people, whether they were living it properly or not. They still had this pride. We're God's people. And people would look to them and say, though, you know, those are the people who follow that God. And uh, so now they can see how God has actually worked. Looking back historically, um, Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah serves, um, he becomes king only eight years after Queen Esther, um, after the Feast of Purim is instituted and all that. And so 
there are enemies. There are real enemies of the Jews in this mm-hmm. area. There are people who have looked at them with hatred in the past. And so it's it's important that that they rebuild the temple, that they show um, that they do trust God. And these people are um, probably in the area. There is probably some sort of racism present among those people. And then to see God's hand helping them, maybe that would silence. You know, I mean, clearly that silences their enemies. Mm-hmm. I hear you, Kitty. Yeah, we're fighting. <laughs> Our, I mean, playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that chapter ends showing that there is still opposition. Tobiah is still being a jerk, and he can still continues to try to in, intimidate Nehemiah. But Nehemiah's perseverance ha, has has prevailed here, and we've got this wall built. And I see so many parallels here where we can see this, we can see application here um, within the church, whether it be your local church, whether it be the worldwide church. Uh, I can see applications within our own families, within our own personal lives of, of following God's calling, stepping up when he's given you the ability, remaining vigilant, even when you pray to God for help, remain vigilant, knowing that there's going to be opposition and continuing to do the work anyway. You can you can probably determine for yourself what that calling may be. It's you know, it's not always going to be build a wall, but in some ways it is. You know, we're all we're all called to build walls of some sort. Um, and in this case it was a real actual physical wall for for the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the main thing I took away from this this whole series of chapters was like those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each mm-hmm. of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked, mm-hmm. you know, and then and then they had a system set up, you know, whenever wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. And then um, half the men holding half the men worked and half the men held spears. And then even when people went for water, everybody took their weapon. Like, if you're in a war, act like you're in a war. Yeah, actually, that's that's really good because I was with some friends last night and I was realizing how uh, their their daughter is in some serious trouble. And And that's a reminder to me what you just said. Like, if we're in a spiritual war right now, my focus right now in life should be praying for that girl. Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be the other stuff that I have going on. Like it should be a huge priority to fight for that girl. And what is my greatest weapon? Prayer. Well, and like Karen was saying, act like you're in a war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you are, cause we are. Yep. Cause yeah. we are. Exactly. We and the war, war for, for, you know, right now it was very visible to me that that's where the battle is lying. The, the portion of the battle that I'm aware of right now is, is right there. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't be dumb. Look right. around, assess the situation, assess the enemy, be as prepared as you can. And mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's important to to just like Karen saying to assess the situation, because a lot of times we feel. And don't get me wrong, don't don't think about this the wrong way that where I'm questioning somebody's faith or something like that. But sometimes we step out and we're just not looking at what's going on around us mm-hmm. where, oh, you know, the Lord will protect me. It's like, no, but he wants you to do your due diligence, too. You know, yeah. don't, don't pray and step out into a busy highway and say, I'm not going to get hit by a car. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Practice some self, some um, common sense, common sense. There you go. 
Well, and there's that whole, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Like, don't be stupid. Don't be naive. Yeah, double sneaky. Right. He's got a million different angles. Yes. Keep your eyes open. Don't be dumb. The old, the old phrase comes to mind. Use the sense the good Lord gave you. Yep. Come yeah. into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. <laughs> but the fly was not dumb and had a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other and said, <laughs> excuse me, that sounds stupid. I'm going over here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, well, awesome. So we see how God, we see how God worked and we see how he worked through people to accomplish a goal. And we can see how, if we can apply it to our own lives of accomplishing the goals that God has given us, stepping in where we are called, doing our part, um, remaining diligent, keeping our eyes open and continuing to pray. And that is, We'll end Nehemiah chapter six. So next week, I am thinking that we can probably finish the book of Nehemiah because as I was looking forward, there's a couple of chapters that is literally lists of names. Yeah, that genealogy skip button Mm -hmm. that I texted you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The Babylon, yeah, the Babylon B had a more sons, no more begots. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff that's good for historical context because it, it lends us some credibility, I think. Uh, but so many syllables. Who looks at their children and says, "Oh my goodness, I have to name them Shebaniah, <laughs> Bill Guy." Yeah. Some strange names. Yeah. So next week, I think we will we will continue with the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapters seven through thirteen. And we are we are closing in quickly on the end of the uh, Old Testament. Fun. Yeah. I've learned a lot. Yeah, you know, we may have to just have an episode of just kind of review of the whole Old Testament. Just, to, you know, things that we've, things where let's we've make, grown and learned. and Let's do it in an hour that's taken us two years. Yes. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying to think of a way to say that, Tracy. Thank you. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how that rolls. But We can't formulate sentences during the morning, but we're going to take <laughs> one great journey over <laughs> in an hour. <laughs> right. And especially Amy, who didn't get to contribute to a lot of that. We definitely need her quick summary. There you oh. go. Amy has studied on her own, I'm sure. Of the entire book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers (laughs) and Deuteronomy. Yeah, I did. I missed a lot. But it should be short. You know, there's not going to be no sons of or no begot, so we should be good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, Numbers. (laughs) So anyway, for our listeners, while you are reading ahead in Nehemiah's Nehemiah chapters 7 through 13 and waiting for us. Remember, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Make sure that you uh, subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and family. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.